0: My mind always sees reality and possibilities simultaneously. And everything I do is around helping people to live out their potential. That's the constant stream in my life. When I started working in philanthropy, refugees were seen as beneficiaries. People in camps, mostly black and brown people, receiving handouts from the UN and other larger organizations. And I was thinking, there's so, so much wrong with that. Imagine what is possible if you see people as full individuals, as whole beings in all its facets and the full potential of people and their agency. Self-determination is a right that we all deserve to have and execute.
1: This week's guest is Nagar Tayar, a philanthropic refugee rights advocate, life coach and co-founder of the Global Whole Being Fund, an international fund supporting the humanitarian, and long-term needs of forcibly displaced people, too commonly referred to as refugees. We cover a lot in this episode, from Nagar's early memories of growing up in Iran, her parents being civil rights activists that resulted in them fleeing Iran, moving from country to country and relying on the kindness of strangers before arriving and settling in Germany, and the challenges she and her parents experienced in such an alien culture. Nagar discusses in detail the global scale of the refugee crisis and how she became co-founder and director of the Global Whole Being Fund. She explains its vision and mission and how it focuses on grassroots ecosystems and how their holistic approach enables more equitable solutions and empowers the displaced to have a voice. Nagar is not only a powerful advocate for the rights and well-being of displaced people, but she's also reframing the narrative and mechanisms of how philanthropic grants work and changing the operational control to encourage refugee-led organisations. While our newsfeed may be filled with stories of despondency and desperation, hearing Nagar's vision and vitality is a timely antidote and a much-needed boost of optimism. So please enjoy. Nagar, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast.
0: Thank you, Mark. It's such a pleasure to be with you here on this sunny Friday.
1: And yeah, sunny here as well. So it's Friday. We time to stamp that. I'm sitting in Austin, Texas, and you are sitting where?
0: I am sitting in Oakland, California.
1: Ah, oh, delightful. Well, let's, let's get going. You've had a fascinating journey through philanthropic refugee rights as an advocate. You're also a life coach, but. You've got a fascinating backstory. And I've, I have to say, I have interviewed a a couple of other Iranians in the past. And I I lived in Iran when I was a, a kid. And my dad was there, lived in Tehran for a couple of years. So I've got an affinity with Iran and I still, I'd love to go back. So I'd love to hear your backstory where you were born in Iran and maybe just discuss some of your early memories as a child after the Islamic revolution. It happened in 79 when Ayatollah. Khomeini came back from Paris and ousted the Shah of Iran. So maybe you could just go back and reflect on on that period of your life and then what led you away from Iran?
0: Sure. I mean, now reflecting back, I'm realizing what a, what a very important historical time it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, Iran was going through a lot of upheaval, but a lot was also happening here in the US, not just in relationship to Iran. And then you think about all the shifts and changes that were happening in the Soviet Union, right? Which my parents and I traveled through at some point. And then Germany, where I ended up growing up, was going through some profound historic moments itself. So altogether, it feels like I happened to be born in a very important historic moment and Hmm. not really able to grasp how all these pieces were connected, obviously, through the lens of a child, But the way I experienced the aftermath of the revolution, I was basically born in 1984, which was five years post-revolution. My parents were civil rights activists, right, revolutionaries. They were saying back then, but it's more appropriate to say civil rights activists. They were fighting on the side of the democratic forces within the revolution. Most people don't know, as with any revolutions, it's not homogenous, right? There are many fractions, I think what you described just now with Khomeini, it was, it really, it, it hit people by surprise to see what a turn the revolution took because it seemed to have what from the stories that I know, it seemed to have been a very inclusive and powerful movement altogether. Suddenly with Khomeini coming back, it turned to be a fundamentalist movement and the fundamentalist Islamic fractions turned against all the others. So I was born unexpectedly, right when my parents were already on the run. They had already lost their jobs. They were both working in the public sector. My dad was teaching mathematics. My mom was a a teacher for literature. And they were basically running for their lives because many of their comrades were had disappeared. Many were killed and others left the country already.
1: Just a matter of interest, which part of Iran?
0: I don't even remember because we were... I was technically born, I mean, I was born in a hospital in Tehran, but the time we spent there was so minimal because we were moving every, every week, sometimes every other week we would find ourselves in a new location. So it's crazy. Yeah. But I think because hmm. I had so much consistency in my mother, particularly because my mother was always there. My father would disappear given the work that he was doing, but my mother was like the constant it didn't feel like that. But like in hindsight, we spent my first five years in Iran moving around every other week or every week. It was madness.
1: Yeah, it is interesting when you, you mention, I mean, obviously, there have been countless examples of some revolutions where coalition of interest parties want to overthrow a dictatorial regime. With each of those factions believing that they will establish some form of power base or ongoing coalition, but the reality is that there is no brokerage or uh, brokering. All that happens is one dictatorial regime is replaced by another, which was the case with the, the power of Khomeini and the Revolutionary Guard to then take control of Iran and suppress democracy, even though there are supposed elections now. So yeah, that must have been a very distressing traumatic time during the sort of the 80s. I've read that they escaped. You sort of touched on that at the beginning of the interview and they escaped via Poland to arrive in Germany at obviously a a time of great transition around 89 at the fall of the Berlin Wall. At That time when you, you probably arrived there, it was still the East and West Germany. So maybe you could just recount that experience and how that being displaced persons, refugees, has shaped the direction you've gone in life.
0: Yeah, well, sure. And initially, you had asked me to also focus on the early years. And when I was reflecting on that, I realized that while it sounds mad to just imagine being on the run for your life, and all the people that you were working with, or you were, you were, you were building this movement with suddenly disappear, right? And you don't Mm -hmm. know, are they still alive? Are they not alive? We would hear about buses that fall off a cliff accidentally, knowing that it's obviously not an accident. So disappearance became some part of my parents' life at that time. And you would think that as a child, I would feel distressed by that. But I think what's so interesting is that because I had so much love and care by both of my parents, and because my my dad, particularly from the beginning, he was treating me like uh, he would a normal person, not so, mm-hmm. like some does, you know, infantilized children a little bit. But he was taking me very serious as a little, little being. So I, I did not feel that degree of distress at that point. Things started changing the moment we boarded that plane and the airport of Iran, basically in Tehran, and we left the country. Because that was the time, I, I still remember, my grandparents, my mother's parents took us to the airport. And it was very painful. I don't even know why. Because for me, it was just, you know, we are traveling. And we are traveling all the time. I've been traveling ever since I was born. But somehow, I could feel it in my bones that something's different this time. And it it really crushed me at that moment. And I think our journey took about a year and a half to mm-hmm. get to Germany.
1: Wow. I mean, during that period, where were you living?
0: It it really depended. The The first huge stage was, which also determined the entire course of our journey, was we were supposed to get to Istanbul, meet people who would help us to get into the refugee resettlement program. Unfortunately, that did not work out. We did not get accepted in that program. The dream was to go to Canada. So that pushed my parents into doing undocumented work, basically joining the informal sector. And my dad was working in construction. My mum would be weaving silk and producing beautiful shirts and skirts, which she would then sell in Turkey. In Turkey, exactly. And we had gracious Turkish hosts who agreed to host us as well, a family with two kids that agreed to take on, and that, that's no joke, right? To take on three other people. Yeah. So that moment, that was like the longest chapter. We spent the most amount in Turkey in that limbo situation, as my parents were obviously saving to then figure out what to do next. And on when we crossed into what was back then the Soviet Union, but already was kind of like all the different states were becoming independent, Back then it was Georgia. We would basically sleep in hiding. In Georgia, we didn't really have any shelter. The country was going through so much itself, right? There were long food lines. I still remember even for locals to access the most basic like eggs and bread. I remember there was only eggs and bread. And then we made it to Azerbaijan because we are technically ethnic Azeris. So we are, I am born in Iran, but my ethnicity is Azeri. So we speak Azerbaijani. You know, Iran is a funny place because most people think the dominant language is Farsi, which obviously the formal language is, the public language is Farsi. But there are so many millions of Azeris who speak Azeri. And there are many, millions of Kurds and Afghans who speak their own languages. So it's a very mixed country. But yeah, so we decided to go to Azerbaijan because my dad was basically dreaming of that's probably going to be our homeland. Now that Canada is not an option, it's our people, our language, very similar in terms of culture. What we didn't know was that the Soviet Union had really, I mean, the Azerbaijan was not anything comparative to like Northern Iran, right. where a lot of Azeris live and the living conditions were extremely hard. So my mother and I, we plotted against him and we said, we are not going to stay here. You are welcome to stay here, but you have to stay home yourself. So we convinced them to carry on. But in there we were sleeping with other family on a family that had a farm somewhere North from the capital of Baku. They were generously hosting us. And I actually went back and visited them 20 years later. It's, yeah, from there on, the journey continued. So it really, I think the cons- consistent piece were uncertainty, always figuring out, scrambling together another place to stay, and huge amount of generosity of people that were, you know, shipping in and providing help.
1: I mean, I I was talking to my sister in Scotland recently about just the, finally the UK are beginning to take on Ukrainian refugees and, and just hearing about the kindness of strangers inviting people into their homes as you say young families and with no certainty as to when that you know that welcoming how long that will last and it just it says something about humanity it's uplifting I don't you know we're surrounded by and subsumed by the negative news cycle but within that are all these amazing stories of kindness and generosity that's heartwarming and you've experienced it. So in the position you're in now, you must be, you must hear so many of these great stories of how people are helping ease the pain and burden of being displaced.
0: You know, I love that you bring that up because we are also doing work around Ukraine and we started a campaign that Choose Love Inc. is is generously running and leading. And we have about 37,000 supporters at this point who collectively contributed about $12.5 million in about 12 weeks, which was astonishing, right? People are being pushed and pulled in other directions. But part of that work is to inform people, because transparency is something very important to us, and we'll get to that. But as part of that, I was writing our latest Ukraine update to our supporters yesterday, and I was writing about the interconnected nature of things, right? And how we always focus on... This terrible event here is going to have such bad implications on us. But there is also, as one of our partners on the ground in Ukraine actually was reminding us of, there is also the positive part of the interconnected nature of things. To your point, people's generosity that have huge ripple effects. I mean, imagine that family in Turkey by back then in the late 80s, and they were working class family. They weren't wealthy. We had, I remember they had a, they had a two room apartment. It wasn't even like two bedroom. It was a, technically a one bedroom, what we would consider. Suddenly you have seven people. You have almost like twice as many people as you had with your own family. And that family thinking we are just helping him through the day now, but see what that help did for us, right? Without safe housing, we might have been deported back to Iran, and then our lives would have taken a whole different course. So I think, to your very important point, there is A, so much generosity, more than what we are seeing, that right that is happening every second, every minute. And then that generosity has so many ripple effects that we are not even aware of now in this moment, not to mention later in the future.
1: It certainly is interesting that it's it's invisible to us yet there's probably a palpable effect on communities and just the long lasting impact will have on the memories i mean you can recount vividly the memories of being in turkey so you think about the millions of refugees across europe that are encountering on the whole probably the, the human spirit of warmth and and, and generosity and that will live with children for generations to come and will be recounted around dinner tables and fires or wherever about and and it builds a an interconnectedness that albeit we're going through this fractious time, I think we have to look and see and be and trust in the there the, the, there will be positives that come out of this
0: one hundred percent I mean. I can count so many incidents of like, so many, these like short daily interactions where, you know, someone really just was generous in that moment and was kind to you, right? I can recount so many moments like that. And I think we undervalue those little things, right? I I forgot who it was, but someone was writing about the the beauty of the small things right at the end, those actually are so important. And that's what we recollect. So I'm glad that you brought that up. And I think, I think oftentimes what I struggle with here and, and having moved to the US about six years ago is this notion of like, It's the individual that cracks something, right? It's the individual that has, that is like being overemphasized and like, you know, you change your life overnight by doing these five things, right? But our lives are being changed by so many people, right? And something through random acts of kindness.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, talking of random acts of kindness, you ended up in Germany after all these. The, the generosity of strangers. Can you then maybe just talk about how that that radical change affected you? And I think also maybe just talk about how I went to... I didn't have a life like you. I mean, obviously, I talked about Iran, but I went to many schools and change for me was just norm. Every two years, meeting new friends, living in a new place, the upheaval, leaving friends behind. I'd love you to reflect on not just that impact of arriving in Germany to a new language, new people and new schools, new home, but also how that period of upheaval has armed you or has empowered you to deal with the world we live in today, which is a world of ambiguity and uncertainty.
0: Yeah, I... I love that you're asking about the early years in, in, in Germany because I think just recently I realized that the people always think like, oh God, things in Iran must have been awful, right? And we just talked about it. I didn't experience it to be that awful because I had loving parents with me and we had always community. My dad was always in a way, my mom is more introverted. My dad was more the extrovert he would always gather people around him. He would always have like a full house, even if we don't have any, much to share in terms of bread and ba- butter. But I think arriving in Germany really shook me. Mark, it was just seeing how those larger than life people who were my parents, right? Suddenly became so tiny. So I think the arrival in Germany was really the hardest part, right? Because up to that point I had seen my parents and their full self. They were like these larger-than-life people who, in my view, those were my heroes, right? On many levels. Even though things like homeschooling by my mom really annoyed me. <laughs> I hated doing it. And she always said, wait, in like 20 years you will be grateful, which turned out to be true, but back then it was just awful. But I think arriving in Germany and seeing how they were just reduced to that label of strangers, right? Of like, oh, they are here to exploit our system or these, the, these, in the US we say aliens, right? Which is like, why are we even using that word alien and that we are talking about human beings? That really took a huge toll on them. And as it is with parents and in a family unit, whatever takes a toll on your parents takes a toll on you too, right? And kind of like it's inter, again, interconnected. So the early years were really, really difficult. I just felt my parents are broken suddenly. And those people that I was looking up to before suddenly were so small. And suddenly they were looking up to me because I picked up German so much faster than they did. And I was finding myself in these situations, which others in my situation have said the same, where you suddenly are navigating the family, right, by being the person who talks, as a little, as a little one, in interviews at the doctor's appointment, right, and like in the post office, and situations like that, and you're like, "Uh, uh-uh. I want them to talk. I'm not supposed to be the one who is leading this." So that took a toll on us as a family, right? And I think Germany at that time, given what it was going through as a divided country, that was trying to figure out what is our one identity and there was already weirdness around the Easterners and the Westerners right just us as like Iranian looking Middle Easterners being put in the middle that just felt a little out of place.
1: But there is I mean I went to Germany way before the Berlin Wall came down and there were a a very large percentage of the population are Turkish there so in a way you probably blended into a large degree.
0: I'm glad you're mentioning that because I was like, can I get, do we get to speak about that a little bit? I think quite challenging because I love that you bring it up because it's something, that's actually where my work on migration started, right? It was around the exhibition, an exhibition that was interdisciplinary focusing on migration. And in that exhibit, we were basically grappling with Germany's history after the second world war. And what happened was due to labor shortage right? Because many soldiers had died and people were affected by the war. And there were, mind you, so many big cities were shattered, right? Completely leveled. So Germans, as pragmatic as they are, are like, we need labor, let's get people to come. So you had a lot of Turks, along with Greeks and Vietnamese and Italians and others, come as guest workers, right? But the idea was never for them to stay, there was a very clear notion of, yeah, it was very transactional. And from a German standpoint, you would think, oh, yeah, it's practical. But humans are not practical, right? So the idea was that people would come, right, do that thing. And Germans would say, but do you benefit too, right? Because you get paid more than you would at home. You get work that you would otherwise not get. You can send the money back home, all win-win, except that, People then brought their families or they fell in love with Germans or others. So people basically started rooting themselves and Germans never intended for them to root themselves in the country.
1: Yeah, I didn't know that. It's interesting when, when you think about the, the same parallel in pra- 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 pragmatism in 2015 when Merkel opened the, the borders to a million Syrians, a lot of people went, well, She's just being pragmatic, because if you look at the future projections on birth rate to Germany to maintain its economic growth, it needs a younger generation to come in. And inviting these Syrians, or wherever they come from, is a pragmatic way to bolster and to maintain their economic power. You know, I sit here in Texas and hear all the stories about the border crisis, but the reality of the countries like the US and it's all about integration of many cultures that bring multi-diverse, multi-ethnic communities together to live cheek by jowl, side by side, street by street, that build the vibrancy of economies like the US and like Germany is today, and Britain as well, a multi-ethnic economy, that, you know, although there's still nationalism. We can't recognise that the planet is built on migration that's been going on for generations and will always go on that we we seem to put up these barriers to it and, and apply these labels to people who are migrants and refugees and call them aliens it's crazy that we haven't learned
0: no and i think it's so it's so interesting and something i just can't wrap my head around because i don't have i don't have any sense of nationalism Right, any pride to any nation, right? It's not. I'm. I don't have that with Iran, right? I. I don't have that with Germany, right? I don't. I am not developing that with in the U.S. where I live now since six years. And I think what's interesting for me is that even those who are technically not owning the land or and are not technically from this land, then to turn around and determine who belongs here and who doesn't, right? Just eradicating the maybe not so long ago past, right, and the history. I think that's something I can't really grasp because to to your point around Texas, right, when Texans now, Texas natives now say who belongs and who should seek sanctuary and not, you would want to say, you know, not long ago, this wasn't Texas.
1: It was Mexico.
0: It was Mexico.
1: It was owned by Mexico, I know. As my partner Elaine continues to tell me, he said, the Mexicans foolishly sold it.
0: Yeah, and even now, when your heating doesn't work, some of your higher officials, you know, run over to Mexico. <laughs> so, I mean, like... And the same is like, with even with some of our peers, right, my parents' peers, people from Iran and other countries who fled to Germany, I sometimes like, I stopped following some of them on Facebook, because some of them would say, the country is already full, we can't accept more people. And you're like, not so long ago, you were in that same waiting line, right? So what happened between now and then? (laughs) So I think... One of our biggest issues in this whole migration discourse is who determines that who belongs and who doesn't. And the other piece is that we are always like, we are. it's almost as if we are wired to think in scarcity, right? As if there is not enough. And if other people come, we are going to have even less. When to your point, it's actually quite the opposite. Angela Merkel, for the first time, she did something I was actually like, oh God, now I bow to you, right? Because I had my own problematic relationship with the with her party but, and her, their stance on immigration. But she was doing, to your point, it wasn't that from, ni- from one night to the other, she became a better person. She was just thinking practically as the leader of the country, what is best for my country and this is what is best for my country. And if it would have been executed well, we would have seen a whole different situation. But I think We ended up doing what happened back then with the guest workers, this notion of like, oh, people are just coming to stay a little bit and then they're going to go back home. You're like, no, it's not. I mean, home is not what it was yesterday, maybe, or 10 years ago. The notion of home also shifts. And sadly, right, even in the context of Syrians, we forget to talk about Syria a lot because Ukraine is getting so much attention. We also don't talk about Afghanistan home is not safe, right? Syria is still not safe. And we are deporting Syrians back to Syria. And Afghans are not being evacuated, even though they're fearing for their lives right now. So it's it's a very weird mix of things and that come together. Even this notion of who determines what is safe, right? Like sometimes what, what really startles me is that when those countries that were deporting Syrians back to Syria would never suggest their own citizens to travel to Syria because the embassy usually says we don't advise you to go there. So what makes it safe for those that actually have, are going to be persecuted as opposed to tourists, right? It's, it's all a little complicated.
1: Mm. Well, Before we get into the specifics of what you're doing in that domain, can you maybe just just give a little bit of background on those early years?
0: Yeah, I, I would say the hardest part was really the landing in Germany and the reckoning with, oh my God, this is what life is going to be like. It felt it's all like 50 shades of gray, right? It's just like this very alien culture, pretty hostile environment, And this is another immigration weird thing. We went to Cologne, basically announced that we had entered the country undocumented to seek asylum because we had my mom had an uncle and family in Cologne. But then the way it works is that they then locate you somewhere else. So basically they... Separate you from your family that is actually living in the country and could help you. And we were sent to the outskirts of Cologne, about an hour and a half away from the city itself, which comes with its own complications because these are mostly rural suburban areas that are 10, I mean, normally more homogenous, right? And then in, in the sense of demographics and most don't appreciate having 50 nationalities pushed together in like one building right so that's what happened and i what i recall from those days and weeks was it was it was really awful it was basically always waiting like if you have to tell me like one word that describes things it was like limbo not knowing where are we going to go where are we going to stay how much longer do we have to stay in this awful building we were first cramped in a in a sports complex divided with curtains with like 250 families They're like you have no privacy shared bathrooms for 250 people all from different cultures and different cultures have other sensitivities around mixing genders like that yeah and just because we are all seeking asylum it doesn't mean that we are all the same and we speak all the same language there's so many dynamics between Black and brown people, Muslim and non-Muslims, even within Muslim populations.
1: Yeah, and the prejudices that exist.
0: It was awful. It, I, I mean, it, I can't tell you. It was just awful, and I think it took a long time till we were able to have our own private apartment, and that was like the beginning of our asylum process. And then,
1: yeah, just even things like as a child, just the, the the impact that must have on your mental well-being leaving aside just the, the the realities of being in a in a place of so many people and just from a food standpoint it couldn't have been fantastic being taken from everything you've been used to to be given food for a center of a couple of hundred people that must have been very very challenging and Difficult for your parents to witness and educated people who probably wanted to do good for you and look after you. It must have been challenging for them to maintain their resilience through that.
0: I think it, honestly, I think it broke them. I, I really, really think those early days and weeks were really terrible for them. And mind you, they had gone through like some other terrible things. My dad escaped prison in Iran, right, which is not a joke. But um, those days were really hard. And I think oftentimes people think, and I was joking in preparation of for today, I was like chatting with a friend of mine. She is an Afghan refugee and lives very close by. And someone I really look up to a lot. And we were saying how funny it is that people always say, oh, you're happy, you're in Germany. In her case, it was the U.S. Actually, it's not such a happy place altogether, you know, what we left is rich cultures, families, a huge community, like support systems to then be isolated in the middle of nowhere, not speaking the language. And to your point, the food not tasting like anything. <laughs> I think it's not always what people make it out to be. And the, the landing is determined so much of like how you build a connection to a place. You, you know, that also been traveling a lot and moving around a lot. How you arrive somewhere really is important and how you are being received. So those days were tough, but I think they also shaped who I am now and what I do now. And so much of what I do now is focused on helping others to have a softer landing, giving others the support that we did not have, knowing that what toll it takes on people, on parents and on kids when parents have to scramble that together in a place that they don't really know and understand and be, are able to navigate. And mind you, you do all that without even knowing, is this going to be home now? Will you be able to stay here or
1: not? That arc of the journey from leaving around and witnessing all the things that you, you are know, is built is created as a, you probably are a more compassionate person than you would have been if you just stayed in Iran. And certainly more empathetic to the needs of refugees today. When you look back on on your childhood, I mean, we do you look back on that time with happy memories? Or do you think you, do? I mean, is it fair to say, did you have a happy childhood, even though you went through these traumas?
0: This is, I think, one of the most Profound insights I had as a, as a, as the course of us having this conversation, which was this realization that if you would have asked me that question earlier, I would have said, no, my childhood was awful. I did not really have a childhood, right? I was, I grew up way too early as they say, but then I think, in thinking about this question, um, I think, all these years of working on myself and therapy and work with the trauma and other kinds of ways and all the support that I have had, right? talk about the generosity of strangers, but also generosity of your own community and your chosen family, since I lost my own family for most part. Um, I would say, yes, I actually had a very, very, very good childhood. And I think it's because realizing that the answer is yes, because of the graciousness and the personalities of my parents, right? They always, always made me feel loved throughout all these upheavals. Love was always a constant. And I realized that's what you actually need, right? The outside circumstances were different and they were not how I would have wanted it to be for any child, Um But love was always a constant in our house. Kindness was always something that my parents practiced every day. And the last piece, I think, is what also made it a happy childhood was I was always seen by my parents. And that's something I realized in the course of, you know, doing all this work.
1: makes me think of my mother always shouting at me, you're here to be seen, but not heard. So I suspect they heard you as well as seeing you.
0: Oh always my mom would even say I mean stop her you you are doing too much because my dad was always very enabling but like no she has she has to help her own opinion her own voice i want to hear what she thinks so
1: it's funny i used to ask guests question did you grow up in an environment of scarcity or abundance and what i started to see was a pattern that those who had gone through you lived in some I'm, Upbringings and non traditional family upbringings, you know, living without mothers and fathers and with, through grandparents in poverty in small rooms with other kids in them and, you know, struggling with food security. They grew up because they were loved and they were cared for. There was an abundance of love and support. The memories are of happy childhoods. Yet where there was maybe a, um, a scarcity, of affection and love, then obviously the memories are different. And I think it's interesting when you talk about it. And I, I do think that's where there's an intersection. It feels to me, you're probably much better, you're certainly much better place to say, to comment on this, of where even though parents who might be traumatized by having to leave places like Syria and now Ukraine and other migrants of climate or because of wars fear the impact it will have on their children, the, the damage that yet. The persistence of care and love and for them, regardless of the trauma and the difficulty of the physical manifestations of where they are, reinforced by the kindness of strangers, come together to create almost this cocoon for children to help them navigate these periods. So, although we probably have huge concerns about what this crisis right now with ukraine is going to do to children i suspect might be wrong but we'll look 20 years from now we'll hear the stories recounted by children who grew up in this crisis with happy memories may have obviously clear memories of the struggles and the challenges like you were recounting But we'll probably look back if the parents have been there to love them and care for them in the conditions wherever they find them they will still probably grow up to be resilient human beings.
0: Yeah, I think what you say about scarcity and abundance and the multi-dimensionality of it, right, it not just being the material world, right, but also the emotional, it's hugely important, really. And I think that's been one of the biggest realizations for me and something only through my work with one organization that we supported is the it's an organization that responded to the Syrian war and they do they do mental health provided by refugees for refugees. It's a really beautiful model. And I think when the founder, there is also a great TED talk, If for those who want to listen to it, we could add the link. When he was talking about how he developed this model, when he was explaining the approach of showing children while they are on the journey, right? Literally, they've just, dropped off the boat, right? How big heroes, what, what big heroes and human beings they are, how important their existence is, right? That they matter, that people around them care for them, right? And supporting the parents to how hold that narrative. I realized my, my parents did that, right? Knowingly or unknowingly. And that's the reason why I feel like I've remained to be a whole person, despite all those scars and the pain and the suffering. And I think there is huge there is a huge opportunity for us to, we always talk about the lost generations, depending on the context, it always refers to different things, right? But I think if we think about that, the fact that you are uprooted to your point and that you have not the childhood that you should have, you deserve to have, every child deserves to be safe, protected, nurtured, loved, cared for, does not take away from you being whole, right? And what are little interventions to provide to keep children whole? Like we were highlighting yesterday in the Ukraine update, an organization that is, that is opening up 100 child care centers in like 100 days. It's, it's wild what they're trying to achieve and they're doing astonishing work. And it's such a beautiful model because it's building a sanctuary for children to process their trauma because that needs to have a safe space, right? You can't just like address it in a like, you know, clumsy way because whatever being processed needs to be held, right? It it requires a safe space. And what is beautiful is that they are engaging Ukrainian women to be teachers and caregivers in those settings and offer child care. Which also releases the burden on, you know, parents also, obviously. But it also addresses the short shortage in childcare across Poland, right? So it also comes back to this point of like reciprocity. It also gives something back to the hosts that are so generous. So I think there are so, so many small ways that are actually an impact, not small. They have a huge impact and on determine the entire trajectory of a child or a family that we can offer in moments like that. And I feel like that's what we have to do. We have to pay attention to those little things that change lives, literally.
1: Um, I always ask a question about someone's childhood, if there were defining memories um, or moments in it. (laughs) There's clearly no question that your, your journey itself was defining, but was there anything that was significant memory, that was pivotal to you?
0: I think in the very early days, I have this memory, and it's kind of wild if you think about it in hindsight. I have this memory of my, and I even have a picture that I wasn't able to find, I would have loved to show it to you, of my dad and I picking seashells at the Caspian Sea at the ocean. And we are like, we are walking around and like trying to figure out what's the most beautiful seashell and dipping our toes into the water on a sunny day. And I think that was such a profoundly important memory for me because it almost feels like a normal chunk of memory. It even now brings tears back to my eyes. And I think the other memory that really, I mean, that memory I would think is... Bringing back those or or, emphasizes the importance of caring, seeing each other, spending time with each other, the importance of being in nature with each other, right? That sense of belonging and community and love that I still carry today. And I think the other, the other memory is a little different, but it's connected. I remember being called out by a math teacher. I think it was in like eighth grade or something. And for whatever reason, he thought I'm Turkish. And, you know, there are always racist slurs, right, for like calling people certain names that they think are very popular. And Aisha is one of those common names for Turkish women in Germany. So he would approaching me and saying, you, Aisha, <laughs> right, thinking I'm Turkish. Mind you, disregarding my name, but she obviously knows because he's my math teacher and I've been studying with her for a while. It's like you, you shouldn't be you shouldn't even be here. You should go home and start planning your family. Aren't you aren't your kind supposed to have like three to five kids? And I was like, I can't tell you. First I was stunned because I was the like, The inner what?
1: feminist kind of roared out.
0: <laughs> I mean, I swear I was like no nobody has ever talked to me like that. If my <laughs> dad would know what you just said, <laughs> you would get in love some serious trouble but i was i was like you know how sometimes you're stunned in that moment and you have you're swallowing all these feelings and i went home thinking to myself why, i'm such an idiot why didn't i say something and then i told my parents and they were outraged they wanted to call the school and stuff and i said don't cause more problems than i already have i'll figure it out so i started studying like a mad person so it turned out I got the best grade in the test that in the exam that we were preparing for, and he <laughs> he didn't even wish me anything or didn't even acknowledge it. He just like passed by my exam results. And somebody in the in the rows behind was saying, Oh, she had the best grades. <laughs> so it turns out she should be here. So that memory had a lot of traction. And I think it really changed a lot in my life. Firstly, I discovered a shared passion with my dad, which is math. He had always wanted me to like mathematics. I never did to that point. And then I really got it. I was like, oh, now I understand. I actually like it. But I think it also showed me that I am so much more than what people project and who I am based on how I look. And people project different things. In the U.S., people project I'm from Central America and speak Spanish, which I'm obviously not, (laughs) right? So I think realizing that others' stigma and you can say racist ideas or you can say projections, right? If you want to be nicer, don't have to limit myself, right? And I can be who I want to be and I can claim my space. But it also taught me that, see, the German... Friend next to me, she didn't have to prove herself and why she's in that classroom. So it also it also helped me understand why my parents were so painful sometimes. You know, they would always like, you have to do more. It's like the immigrant piece, right? Many immigrants say the same. It's like, oh, B e plus is not good enough. It has to be an A. You're like, it's the same. You're like, no, it's not the same. It's a B. An A is an A. <laughs> So this understanding of for us is we have to do twice as much because we are not entitled to be here, right? So bringing it back to the sense of belonging, I think that experience was very profound for me.
1: Mm-hmm. Just look at the U.S. with doctors and lawyers. That from um, Usually either Indians are, are very much driven. I've interviewed quite a few people that their focus is and clearly it has a benefit. So mm, there's going to be a lot of hardworking Ukrainian children over the next couple of <laughs> couple of generations.
0: Yeah, I, I think you are absolutely right. It it, it has an advantage. And I think, I, I mean, as a coach now, I can tell, see, they were seeing potential in you and they were like cultivating that potential. As a child, you're like, can I just be a child too?
1: I know, like, just give me a night off
0: there is a it's almost like it's always same coin has two sides there is the shadow side and then there is the strength. but honestly I would not be here if it weren't for them right and them pushing and seeing potential in me and times where I wasn't able to made had a huge impact on me absolutely I mean look what I'm doing and basically being like a. I need an immigrant parent to my clients in the coaching space, <laughs> being their pain in the butt now.
1: I heard you wrote um, the book uh, that became a movie called "Not Without My Daughter." Made your life hell, and uh, not um, it, as a teenager made your life hell. What? what I'm intrigued. Um, what, your life was was hell. Why was that movie? What? What? What impact did it have?
0: Oh, the movie. Oh, god. You know it's. I have to look up when it was actually published. I I swear it was probably just published when we got to Germany. So it was being shown in cinemas. And so it is one of those, I mean, by now we know it's not surprising to hear that a lot of propaganda is being packed in pop culture, movies, music, right? The Nazis showed how effective that can be. But that movie was basically just slandering, like Iranian culture and Iranian man, portraying Iranian men as being abusive, and this was like a, a biracial relationship. Iran, an American woman yeah. married an Iranian husband. They had a child. Went to Iran. Things went sour. It was awful because people would like random people ask in Germany. Everybody asked you firstly where you could have the thickest local coach accent like I have. People make a lot of fun of it, but people would still ask, oh, so where are you from? And you would say Germany. And they're, where are you really from? And they wouldn't let go till you finally say something. And the moment you say Iran, it's like, oh, my God. Is your father like that guy too? Do you get beaten? Does your mum get beaten? Is it so bad? I'm so sorry. You have you must be living in such a hell at home in your family. So it it really and it wasn't an incident of just five people. I swear it was at least fifty times. I've been hearing. Oh my god! I saw that movie. I know it all. And You're like no, you don't.
1: <laughs> the prejudice that is generated from media. Yeah. I'm going to jump to your education and career. Although you were sort of a superstar at math because you're a teacher, um, went to university, in, obviously, in Germany, but um, didn't study math. He did um,
0: Before Germany moved into the whole adopting the master and bachelor system, which I think was a mistake, we had something called the Magister. You could study three uh, disciplines and choose your focus areas in those. So I did political science, focusing on international relations and development studies. I did law, focusing on international law. And I did psychology, focusing on organizational psychology.
1: At that time, obviously, there was something in you that was you were beginning to think about the direction you were going to go. You founded something called the Middle East Society. Um, I've read it was an interdisciplinary forum to reflect upon the, the cultural and political changes um, in the Middle East. Um, and I suppose it was maybe the beginning of that sort of philanthropic service-based um, career that you went on to build. For What... what a lot of people just go to university, go through, have a bit of a good time, pass, come out, and then just go on to start a career. What was it that at uh, that early stage tr- triggered you to do that?
0: I even forgot that. <laughs> you know, that <laughs> I even forgot about the Middle East society. I think, I think it came out of the realization that maybe every region says that about itself, but I think there's something distinct about the Middle East and how little it's understood outside of the region. And now being in the U.S., I realize Europeans actually are a little closer. Americans don't know anything about the Middle East, right? And it brings up anxiety and concerns and ways that are very difficult to understand because it's not that it's so different than other regions. It's very distinct, right? But so... That drive came also from, you know, Iran is being counted as part of the Arab world, but Iran is not an Arab country. Farsi is not Arabic, even mm-hmm. if it looks for outsiders, the script looks yeah. the same. Well, it's I've a trying tell like, that
1: Persian is def- very different to Arab.
0: <laughs> I mean, yeah, culturally, <laughs> yeah. linguistically, uh-huh. historically, very socially, mm-hmm. right? Very different and distinct. And I think... Realizing how little people know, there was this appetite with Pearson University to say, "Let's let's focus on the Middle East. Let's bring different different of us together, talking about it and engaging others and mainstreaming it and helping others understand the region better." And for me, it also came from a place of like I chose those, as you say, people study what they feel like. I knew I can't just. Choose what I want to learn more about. I have to choose who I want to become now because it's going to be important, right? And at that point, my dad had already passed. We lost him to cancer at, at the age of 40. And I also knew that I have to support my mom. So I chose to study those three things because I wanted to join the Foreign Service. I was thinking about I'm going to be a diplomat, it fits my. My, my temperament, I don't really feel belonging in Germany. I'm trying to get out of the country. I'm the only thing that keeps me there, kept me there was my mother. Otherwise I would have studied abroad, but I didn't want to leave her all by herself after my dad had passed and I'm a single child. So I chose those disciplines because it made sense for what is then to come, except that this charismatic and very nerdy teacher, Dr. Holz, he was like one of those old school visionaries of like a united Europe because he was born during the war and he knew what a divided Europe looks like. So he was very active in the European Parliament and in many different different steering committees and working groups and like getting Europe to where it ended up becoming, which mm-hmm. many people, by the way, take completely for granted. They do,
1: yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And the Brits don't see the value in it, some well, of
1: them. <laughs> let's see a 50.5 per fifty point one percent of them don't
0: i mean that by itself it's, is crazy it's probably but changed
1: that's now but anyway, yeah let's not go down
0: that yeah I, I mean i would not have thought this would happen but i i ended up taking a class he was teaching on democracy human rights in latin america of all places, I always felt a strong connection to the region for whatever reason I didn't know. And that course turned my life upside down. I realized what I actually want to do is not diplomacy, but it's to work in international development. And what does international development mean? It means working in countries that don't have very established democracies or economies and supporting them to be more equitable, just, and improved livelihoods for marginalized communities. It felt like it's just aligned with all the values that my parents injected at in me.
1: So you set up something called the Global Whole Being Fund. Was that your first iteration of saying, right, I'm going to do something about this myself, rather than just working? Oh, no,
0: that was kind of like the second stage of life. Uh The first stage was to what I basically ended up doing is I ended up working with the German government, but not on a diplomatic career track, on the international development track. And I worked and lived in more than seven countries working on issues, partly related to displacement and refugees, but mostly around how do you rebuild trust in countries that have faced genocide, like Cambodia or Armenia? Mm -hmm. How do you rebuild just systems like the Supreme Court system in Azerbaijan? Mm -hmm. How do you invest in local government structures that serve all people inclusively and equitably, like in the country of Georgia? And then soon enough, I realized this approach doesn't really suit my values. You know, there is something about proximity to an issue and history that is really important. I know the country where we are both based in, Doesn't really value history that much, I feel like, often. Growing up in Germany, history is a lot. I mean, means a lot. So I've started feeling more and more uncomfortable, helicoptering in different countries, offering solutions that I've heard learned about in other countries, not having a consistent presence somewhere, because the system is designed in a way where you have one position for three years, and then you move to another country and all that. And I became more and more interested in what is actually already, what exists already, right? Deep listening, what is there in place? What do people say that they actually need? And what are elites saying that they need, right? And I was realizing I'm actually now part of this elite class presenting solutions that are not really deriving from the people, and it goes against my values, so I left the international development space um, and came to the U.S., where I met the two co-founders of the Global Well-being Fund, both are incredible philanthropists who wish to be anonymous, um, if possible. And together, we founded the Global Wellbeing Fund, and it was really this notion of. Beyond it being focused on refugees and the well-being and the rights of other people on the move, mm-hmm. how can we uplift and empower those that are in proximity to the issue, right, as opposed to those that are talking on behalf of them or solutions to them?
1: In terms of a timestamp, what, what year was that you set that up?
0: We set this up, it now feels like an eternity, go Mark. It was in late 2015. Yeah.
1: So during that period, that was right at the heart of the the crisis with Syria, and now we've got the Ukrainian crisis, which is now is now superseded the Syrian refugee crisis and the, the migration from you know countries like Afghanistan, Bangladesh, wherever that you've seen people coming to Europe and, um, and from South Saharan uh, Africa. Um, The displacement of people from Ukraine is now larger or on a scale equal to that since uh, uh, the Second World War. I read recently that there have been 14 million people displaced, um, reported by the BBC. And of that, 5 million have actually fled the country. It's probably higher. I know some people have gone back to Western um, uh, Ukraine. But... um, you described the refugee crisis more as a crisis um, of response, um, where outdated responses, frameworks, and mechanisms are not equipped to manage the complexities of these forced displacements. Could you talk about that and how you and the community are addressing this? Because if we said I said in the interview with Sana, and we discussed that, and also earlier with you it's not going away we're only going to see more war more climate crises so something has to be done about this as a, a systemic issue you're clear you've clearly defined it so maybe you could just uh, explain what you're doing to address that and the challenges that you face
0: yeah sure and i think really for those who haven't listened to your conversation with sana i highly highly recommend doing that sana is someone she's like a chosen sister she's someone i really really respect and someone who has, who's adding a lot of value into the space. And we work very closely together. Yeah. I I think my, I think it it comes back to this question of the narrative around the terrible movie, the propaganda movie on Iran, Mm -hmm. right? How we portray something matters. We know that unarguably, right? By now we know the importance of narrative and communications on every issue that we encounter. And I think how we frame things is so important. And back to the question that you had asked earlier around when was the Global Wellbeing Being Fund founded? We founded it, as you said, in response to the Syrian war and this uprootedness of millions of people, not just Syrians, Afghans, Kuwaitis, Yemenis, Somalis, Congolese, right? A whole, probably more than 50 nationalities together, if not even more. If you count Central America huh, and Latin yeah. America. So bottom line was that I was really feeling unsettled about the framing of the refugee crisis. It puts the burden on the refugees, right? It doesn't put, it doesn't really put the burden on lacking response systems, right? To account for something that by, by virtue of laws, right? National law, regional law, international law refugees are rights holders, Mm -hmm. right? After what happened uh, during the Holocaust and, you know, growing up in Germany, I was obsessed with the Holocaust and Mm -hmm. like Germans are doing such a great job and reconciling with the past. I think you will never be able to do a good, perfect job given the dramatic events that happened and the horrendous harm on the Jewish community and other communities, including the Roma community that Mm -hmm. most people don't talk about in this context. Right. But they did a really great job in like making you remember, realizing how systemic the approach was in order to prevent this from ever happening again. Right. Working in Armenia and Cambodia, both countries struggling with genocide too. It doesn't happen to that extent like it does in Germany. The bottom line is that how we portray something is really important and making sure that we honor the rights of refugees that were enshrined in international law as a result of what we saw happen during the Holocaust of boats of Jewish refugees being turned away and basically like expedited to death row. Right. Mm-hmm. In like yeah. stark terms. I was, I, I thought it's, it's, it doesn't help in the public discourse to call it a refugee crisis. What does the average person think? Oh, these people, not even our people causing a crisis mm-hmm. right and a time where people are already like thinking in heightened crisis because it feels like our news are just selling crisis and i was listening to another podcast actually the other day i mo gowdad oh, yeah. who yeah. wrote the book so for happy. happy
1: great book yeah
0: great book and he's such a i mean fascinating speaker also it's so fascinating. He was, he was on channel four and he was saying that his clip on happiness had like skyrocketed the views ever. Mm-hmm. No crisis sold as good as his piece on happiness. So I think the news are also getting something wrong. They think they have to sell tragedies and misery in order to get clicks and likes. Mm-hmm. But it turns out people are actually starving for positivity to yeah. the point we talked about earlier, right? generosity and happy news would also sell if it were portrayed well so bottom line i think our whole argument is that to your point it's not rocket science that there are millions of people that are not in their own countries of origin and it's not by choice if if anything if anything that listeners to our conversation about my own story or sana's story can learn is we never wanted to leave home. And ideally, we would be back to where our families are, right? Because that's that was our happy place, but it got taken away. And I think many here in the U.S. are realizing their happy places are also being taken away, uh-huh. right, by events that are happening in Texas and other places. So I think... Really emphasizing the fact that this problem is not gonna go away and if you sweep it under the rug, as many authorities and, and political parties are trying to do, it it doesn't work like that. And I think the UN just announced for the first time since its existence that there are hundred million people who are displaced because of persecution. Right? And I mean, the number is so much higher, Mark, right? Because they're not counting in people who are displaced based on climate. Yeah. And we are, I think we are on purpose, not paying attention to climate, dis- climate cause displacements, because mm. that would just open so many other worms of cans, right? But just because we are not looking at it doesn't mean that it's not happening. And I think a smarter thing to do would be to reconcile with reality, Come to terms with it, and then design systems that are equitable, rooted in reciprocity, mm-hmm. ultimately benefiting everyone in the society. There are so many examples of what can happen if you do the process well, and I think Ukraine and the response around it is showing us countries are capable of doing that and providing protection to a whole set of people with no question asked mm-hmm. overnight. How come we are not doing that for Haitians here in the US mm-hmm. when we know that they are fleeing devastation and, 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 and crime and persecution too, right? When we know we have the capacity to do that, especially when we are having a shortage of labor, I even know. in this country that we talk about. Yeah. And one thing really hard, I think something that really brings it home is. Just last night, I was attending pitch event by Fast Forward, an organization here in, in, in the San Francisco area. And one of our grant partners, the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, was pitching their work. And, you know, something that they do is phenomenal. It's the only membership association from asylum seekers, right? Asylum seekers basically forming a network. 350,000 people in the U.S. from more than 140 countries, right, across all U.S. territories. And what they have been able to do is to get access to employment and for it to also be automatically renewed. It's a big deal. It means 350,000 people who would not be able to work, now work. Mark, you know what happened? As a result, it's, it's a no brainer that their lives are improved. They have dignity because they can actually work. Nobody wants to get charity and handouts. No person likes that, but their families are also impacted. And as a result, they have generated $4.5 billion. I mean, think about it. Think about what would be possible mm-hmm. if people in proximity to an issue had a voice and the resources to realize their vision,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which this example, I think, shows. So we do need sustainable solutions and humane solutions. And we also need to start thinking outside of the box. There are multiple things that need to be addressed, including how we communicate and narrate this issue, I think.
1: But that's a fascinating fact. I mean, why isn't something like that in the news cycle? Because the narrative is all around prejudice. But if you could switch that narrative to be around profit, not profit just in terms of profit someone makes as an individual but what how communities profit from the diversity from the expanded talent base from the economic impact of generating meeting workers the diversity of communities if you were to sort of switch that narrative and and dampen down the 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 ongoing prejudice yes it would be amazing i want you to talk though about something you've meant i heard you talk about which is called the shift from deficit-based to asset-based grant-making. Because in philanthropy, you have to obviously raise the, from, through the development teams, get people to, to give. Now, obviously in the US, and I can't remember what the latest data was, I did a project in, for Epic Foundation 2019. And the, I think around that time, the majority of giving came from individuals, uh, uh, but about two-thirds of it, little from corporations.
0: Firstly, to build on what you just said, right, I was looking up the data to prior to COVID, I think, and Mm -hmm. what I found out was so stunning, which I think is why the work of Choose Love is really, really important, because they really are paying attention to this, because 70% of all the annual charitable giving here in the US, it's over $290 billion is given by individuals, not by large foundations right? 70% of money that is funding all the work that
1: we are talking about. But the reality of that as well, I will interject, when you actually break it down, it's going to either churches or to schools and universities where people went to, and then it's reliant on them to then distribute it.
0: Absolutely. There is a lot of caveat Mm -hmm. to add to it, but it does show that it's again, I mean, it's what got me to where I am, right? This understanding of my parents that People are powerful, right? If there is one thing that I learned from them, it's that always acknowledge and own and use your power in the utmost and the most responsible way. So I think it shows us that we don't have to wait for a miraculous event to happen, but we can actually direct a lot of that. To your point, yes, a lot of it is still in traditional ways going to your alumni association or funding a school in your own district or whatever county. But a lot of it is also going to very important and pivotal work, like the one that I was describing from the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, for instance, just one example. So I think I I was writing about the asset-based as opposed to the deficit-based framing because when I entered philanthropy as a newcomer six or seven years ago, I was stunned by the fact of you have so much flexibility. I mean, quote unquote, flexibility means different things to different people. Some entities are more flexible than others. I recognize that. But still, at the end of the day, it's not like what I used to work in, like a bilateral organization, like the German Development Corporation or the British Development Agency, DFID, where it's a mandate by the government. You work in a very rigid framework. And very little is really possible to move or change within that framework Mm -hmm. for many reasons, including accountability to taxpayers and other issues, political agendas, right? Bottom line is we have a sector that technically is very flexible and that for most parts is fairly unregulated, right? Who holds which foundation accountable for what they do? Can we complain to a major foundation and say, why are you not focusing on the climate crisis, even mm-hmm. though that's something that's important? We can't. Their boards determine what to do, and there are laws, right, that are working around that. Mm-hmm. But I was stunned by the fact that I, in my mind, and and the way how my mind is wired is, I see life and two screens in parallel. <laughs> I think my my coach just like brought that home, that image very clearly. One image that I see is what is happening just now, right? I see you there, myself situated here, you in Texas, me in California. The other screen that I see is what is possible. My mind always sees reality and possibilities simultaneously. And it's a blessing and a burden. It's a burden because ideally I would be fully present (laughs) all the time. And it's a blessing because I always see potential. And everything I do is around helping people to live out their potential. That's the constant stream in my life. But I was entering philanthropy thinking, why are we not fulfilling our full potential? Why is it that each entity is doing its own thing? There is collaboration happening, but we could do so much more if we were to be transparent with one another and share information, align our work, pool resources together together. And the deficit and asset-based thinking came up in this space, particularly because when I started working in philanthropy, refugees were seen as beneficiaries, people in camps, mostly black and brown people, somewhere in Africa or Central America or parts of Asia, like Bangladesh, for instance, right? Receiving handouts from the UN and other larger organizations. And I was thinking... There's so so much wrong with that, and I think Sana probably has been also highlighting a lot of that too. That's something that we both share this observation of. Imagine what is possible if you see people as full individuals, as whole beings. That's why we named it the Global Whole Being Fund because we started with the premise of wanting to see the whole being, in all its facets, and the full potential of people and their agency. Self-determination is a right that we all deserve to have and execute. And I feel like oftentimes in these more charitable frameworks or in these development frameworks, it's very top-down. Those with resources determine what's important. And then funding is getting to an intermediary organization, usually a large entity that then determines what is needed. So little at the end. Tiny fraction, as McKinsey Scott just wrote in her blog post recently, a tiny fraction of the funding goes to organizations in proximity of the issue and people who are living these realities. And why is that? Right? So the point of that framing was to say, if we have an asset-based framework, we enter the equation with an understanding that there is a lot for us to discover. Let's not make assumptions immediately about what people need Mm -hmm. and if we have a brilliant idea maybe we do a little reality check and say that idea might be brilliant but someone else may have thought about it already does does that make sense yeah it
1: does when you're talking it made me think also and maybe you've already got this in the works but i think it was i was in london in 2019 doing some interviews when i started the podcast and i met a guy who'd set up a philanthropic initiative to help homeless people set up businesses and it was called change please and it's really spread and it's i think it's coming to the u.s basically just to take people with talent and fund them to do their startup ideas so i suppose been back to this prejudice of of people who are displaced or refugees as being talentless and yet they're educated often better than maybe a lot of people in the countries are going to huge amounts of talent untapped and if you were to have something called whole being fund, not just a fund to help them in terms of where they're situated, but think about it as also almost a an investment fund, as a VC funded. Think about if you could actually raise a fund to actually support the initiatives about ideas that exist within these communities of people who have been displaced. Economic impact could be massive, so you could take it to the next level and say, actually, we're here not just to actually integrate people and to help them, you know, build new lives in these communities, but to actually fund the, the, the business ideas, because the entrepreneurial nature of them. And I mean, there's so many stories of, of people that certainly what I think about the, um, entrepreneurial spirit of the, um, Asians that came to Britain in the 1970s during the Ugandan crisis, when Idi Amin sent all the Asians from, had come from India and Pakistan and Bangladesh to Britain. They've gone on to create huge economic impact through the businesses that they set up. So just think about what that could, what could happen now in the US from people coming north from south of the border and what could happen in Europe from people coming from Ukraine?
0: Oh, my God. I mean, like, I get goosebumps when you even say that. I mean, Mm. uh, quite honestly, right, and your observation is so sharp. Look at even the Global Whole Being Fund. Without the investment of the two philanthropists who really gave me a leap of faith because we didn't know each other, we hadn't worked together, I was a stranger showing up in a random dinner, and they decided to trust in what I was saying and Mm -hmm. building on the experience that I had, personal and professional. And six years into it, they invested in me and in the fund, and we have leveraged another probably 80 to $90 million on top of what they have put into it, right? It's huge. It's because this issue really matters to me and I know what it's like when you are in that situation and the way that my brain works is different on on that because it's all it's not just driven with my mind and my skills that I have it's mm-hmm. also driven by my heart that makes a huge difference like asap for instance yesterday I was listening to Ningan who's one of their co-founders she was born in a Singaporean refugee camp and came here with her family early on Right the other co-founders have lived experience too. I was thinking to myself while this woman was on stage, tiny slender woman, how powerful she actually is, three hundred fifty thousand people and their families have access to work rights because of them and the work that they have been able to enable incredible imagine we could have a world in which we have all sanas that exist in this moment have the resources and the platform that Sana and I have earned. Or worked mm-hmm. for over the last year so hard. And it's not just that, it's also privilege. I view myself as extremely privileged for having had the support when I came to the US for this work. Many others have incredible contributions to make, but are not getting the right amount of support. So I think I love how you think. Yeah. I would love for a uh, uh, one philanthropist to really think about how could we lead to a transformative impact on an issue that really determines so many other issues, so many democracies, and the struggle that we have been seeing? And Bre- Brexit was also mostly fueled by xenophobia. I know. So, if we don't create sustainable systems that show people that this is possible and actually we have to do it because the reality is more people are going to move and flee. Yeah. We haven't seen more upheaval even here, right? We already see our worlds being shaped by what Russia's invasion to Ukraine. And that, Mark, I fear, is going to have a lot of ripple effects on the Middle East. Also, Northern Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa.
1: Even before the issue of the risk to global food security through the lack of exports of grain we were going to be facing huge migration crisis over the next 50 years from sub-Saharan Africa. We might as well just accept we are going to see the next round of displaced people hitting the shores of Europe because they're not going south, they're going to be going north. So something needs to be done. So philanthropists need to change their attitude. So so things it's amazing what you're doing to reframe the narrative to change people's perceptions to re-educate to change the systems and create alternative mechanisms um, because it's going to be it's going to be needed going forward
0: thank you for saying that i think if there is really some one thing listeners can take away from this is Mm -hmm. to on every issue you work on to really pay attention to who is making the decisions where is money really going to who is falling through the cracks and why, Mm -hmm. right? And already with the little investments that we have seen on refugee leadership, so much is shifting already. Now imagine that being a meaningful investment. UN agencies have billions of dollars in their budgets and their work is also important. They do critical work, but they are not the answer for everything. Mm -hmm. Imagine you would invest in a movement of refugee-led organizations that would then become too big to be ignored by traditional and better-resourced entities like UN agencies. We would see a much more equitable process, and we would, as a result, see much more, much better results on on the ground. Mm-hmm. People being in better shape as they are now. Right now, it's awful, Mark. I mean, the hardest part in this work sometimes is. Again, those two screens, what I see and what is possible. I have only in this role have seen thousands of people living in limbo with their life being put on pause, not knowing what they are going to do and not having any opportunity to invest their skills and resources in something. And I think if you think about what Viktor Frankl said, who was a Holocaust survivor, who really changed my thinking drastically if someone who is in a concentration camp can find meaning and purpose, and we all can. And it also shows that all of us have a desire to that, to do that. Sometimes people argue and say, but that is a nice thing to have. I say, no, that's a that's a matter of survival, right? It is the thing to have. So why is it that we don't offer that to other people? Why is it that we are re- wasting probably billions of dollars worth in talent, at this moment because we don't provide people dignified and just smart pathways to reestablish their lives because they are not going to go back home.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: As soon as we reckon with that fact, the better it is going to be for all of us because no one should be living in a camp situation, living on handouts that for many years. Mm -hmm. Imagine some people do that for 30 years, if not longer. It's
1: 12. I mean, with that going, I went to Jordan years ago to stay with a friend and a man, and you can just look there and see the, the impact of the, the still existence of essentially, uh, refugee camps or where people have been placed. And, uh, you know, that's today in modern day Jordan. And yet you still have these unseen, hidden, Bigotry of, and, and and prejudice against people who are perceived to be still refugees, decades on. So we can't create a a replication of that in 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 modern day Europe with Ukrainians and Syrians. Something has to be done.
0: I love that one one short short little thing. I love that you brought in Amman because I just got back from Amman where I met Sana and many other peers in philanthropy and organizations, I mean, refugee-led organizations. And we had this kind refugee leadership organization and funder meeting. Mm -hmm. And the result is a beautiful collective that is committed to advance the rights and the well-being of refugees in the Middle East and Northern Africa region. And I think there are so many smart and gifted and resource people that start to care about this issue and we have to all start working more closely together and I'm really excited about this collective.
1: That's amazing you have send me the details and I'll put that in the show notes. Um, what principles do you stand by?
0: Integrity and I would say equity those are the most important. Integrity is yeah. very important because The reason why I left the development sector back then, a lot has happened since then in the last 10 years. I felt like it's out of alignment with the values that I hold. And I know what it, Mm -hmm. I I don't know. Have you ever done work where you feel like "Mm, doesn't sit really well? It feels bad, right? Waking up in the morning and dragging yourself to work like that. Yeah. Doesn't feel like good and meaningful use of the little time that we have on this earth. One person reminded me we have in total about 40,000 weeks if we end up becoming 80 years old. That Mm -hmm. kind of like let that sink in, right? So integrity is important. I want to spend the precious time that I have here. Thanks to my parents, I am actually here. Equity is important also because, you know, my parents committed, I mean, dedicated their lives for that, right? They were in privileged positions themselves, but they were fighting for, an equitable future where every person has the right for self-determination and to live a dignified life. So I feel mm-hmm. like unless all of us are free and can pursue self-determination, none of us is going to be free. So equity shows up a lot and how I negotiate okay. my own uh, working situations, making sure colleagues have the same amount of support as I have, making sure that we don't leave any communities behind. You know, we started supporting LGBTQ plus communities because we realized inclusive approaches don't mean that the support trickles down to everyone. We have to make an effort, right? Same with indigenous and black led organizations. So, yeah.
1: Okay, that's a good answer. Um, You've obviously had to make some very hard choices in your life, but which ones that were tough turned out to be the right decisions?
0: Leaving my mum. I mean, leaving my mom in Germany was really difficult for me. I felt a huge amount of responsibility to be there with her for her because I'm her only immediate family member. But it was the right thing to do. I was—I felt suffocated in Germany back then and see what happened yeah. as a result. But it was a very tough decision. Yeah.
1: Okay. Where do you go to discover new ideas?
0: The Redwood Regional Park, which is 10 minutes away uh, from my house. Yeah. It's, I can't tell you. I mean, I don't know if you have many redwood trees around Austin, where you are. You should come to California.
1: Yeah, I lived in San Francisco for a year. It's it's wonderful to be there.
0: I mean, it's something about the majestic presence of those trees, right? And again, it reminds you of how you are powerful, and yet you are very little in the larger scheme of things. So negotiating those two things is always interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. You're... um doing obviously massively important work, if you could create, uh, do something, have a dinner party and invite four people from history or from today, even today, it could be anyone, that you could band together to help create a better future, who would those people be?
0: Who I would have are, I would have the chain smoker and brilliant thinker Hannah Arendt. She was the first philosopher I really dived into after, um, you know, I grew up with my parents, really sharing Karl Marx and Friedrich Engel's work because it influenced them a lot on equity issues. So it would be definitely Hannah Arendt. I would invite Mackenzie Scott (laughs) because I think I have such profound respect and admiration for what she has done. I mean, she has been supporting so many vital communities and issues across the border and has made a huge impact as a result of that in those communities. She's Mm -hmm. someone I haven't met, but I really look up to. I would invite Greta Thunberg, because I feel like she has really...
1: voice of youth.
0: Right? She has built such an important Mm -hmm. movement. And she's reminding us that what this all is about, it's the future for the next generation. (laughs) And I would add the Dalai Lama, you know, because I feel like...
1: Why not? Yeah.
0: From I haven't met... His Holiness, but from what people are saying, it's like there is laughter guaranteed, coupled with enormous Mm. wisdom and grounding.
1: Um, A question no one asks you, but you wish they would. That's a really hard one.
0: I think a question that we all should be asking each other more, and it comes back to what we talked about, is who helped you to be here Right. We're always talking about where are you from? Who are you? What do you do? Pitch yourself, all that. And I feel so much of that is about you, you, you. But let's face it, none of us would be here without all those that supported us to be here. I'd love to find ways to bring them into the space when that we take up. So it would be, I would love people to ask, you know, who helped to, for you to be here? Right. Thanks to whom are you here? Who are you most grateful for? I think that's something I'd I'd love to talk about more. Honestly, yeah. Mark, I wouldn't be able to say sustain this work with like a positive spirit <laughs> because without so many people that are holding me every mm-hmm. day.
1: Well, the reason I ask, ask that question is for any future podcaster that interviews you, they should do the research and they have to listen to this and they'll hear that question and they'll ask you that.
0: I would love that. I would absolutely love that. because I would love to bring them into the room, you know, because they are so present for me.
1: Um, Who's made you reevaluate yourself?
0: Oh, the list is long. (laughs) Mm. The list is very, very long. The key person, though, that comes to mind is my friend Lata Mani. She is a very, 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 very gifted uh, scholar, author, filmmaker, artist, And she, in fact, just published a book through Duke University. I would highly recommend if we can add the link to Latamani.com, her website, which is like a treasure chest. It is just stunning because, I mean, again, coming back to people who you feel hold you, see you fully, how you are now, hold your potential, but for them, you're already good enough right? They always remind you that you are good enough just now, which is something, you know, as we talk, my parents, that part, they didn't do that well with, for obvious reasons now. But I think she always really grounds me and she calls me out in a safe way. And she always humbles me and she made me reassess how I was working and which paradigm I was working at. You know, so much of my past is about survival, So much of my work is about survival. And it was interesting because I was hustling, right? For when you start a fund, it's no joke. It's very intense work and it becomes like your child of your labor of love, right? It's like your child. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think realizing that what took to get it started is not what it's going to take to sustain it, which is a huge issue. I think a lot of us are facing. How do you shift between stages Right. And my very dear friend, he's like a brother to me, Kabir Babikate also helped shape that thinking of you got to shift gears, right? You can't run on mm-hmm. the highest gear all the time. I think it was her who really challenged me and my assumptions that if I don't run on the same, run on the, run on the same way, everything's going to fall apart but to find confidence that it takes sophistication and it takes a, there is a whole range in which you can operate depending on situation. It's very nuanced, contextual, situation dependent, and that's huge wisdom that I gathered thanks to Lata's gracious support and friendship.
1: Okay. I'll put that in the show notes. Uh, Impossible question. So you've it on what many people would see as an impossible sort of task. Um, what would your advice be to someone that's maybe about to graduate, that's younger, that's got the same goal uh, that might seem impossible and has been told, forget it. That's just not going to happen.
0: I think it's really get good mentors because as a coach, I always say the answers are all within yourself, right? Which is true. But to unlock that wisdom, you need support, right? So I think... Find yourself two, three, start with one really, really good mentors and cultivate a good relationship to them and choose your mentors wisely. Choose people that you look up to, not just because of the ranks that they have achieved, but because of the people that they are and the way they are holding themselves in life. That makes a huge difference.
1: Okay. Um, Final, final questions. You're out with your. Uh, global whole being fund uh, for a night in oakland karaoke song has to be sung what would it be
0: oh you don't want me to sing honestly
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's all fun a karaoke if
0: it has to be a song i don't know i keep thinking about i will survive but i should definitely not sing that song because the notes are way too high for what my voice is capable of doing but I would choose I will survive. I love that song.
1: Okay. All right. It's a good one. Um a recent series or a film that people should watch that they might not have seen.
0: The book of Boba Fett.
1: The one that's on Disney Plus.
0: Yeah. Oh, I love it. I got into the whole Star Wars thing and learned that Star Trek and Star Wars are different things. I did not know that. Just recently through my partner Ratura Bowden. <laughs>
1: Uh, I'm watching The Mandalorian at the moment.
0: Uh, See, I love The Mandalorian. Grogu, I mean, we were actually just talking about Grogu yesterday with a colleague of mine and saying, just seeing Grogu's image and like expressions just evokes so many feelings in you at the same time. (laughs) So Definitely after The Mandalorian, watch Boba Fett.
1: Okay, I'll do that. Um, A book. Um, that you think we should offer our listeners that submit good comments on Instagram or the website?
0: I actually have three books, if that's okay. Okay. Man's Search for Meaning by uh, Viktor Frankl, Mirrored uh-huh. Intimacies by my dear friend and supporter Latamani. and Stewarding the Earth by Kabir Bami And they, they're all very interconnected, very complementary books.
1: Mm-hmm. So, final question, who should we interview next?
0: Sanjay Kabir Babikate goes as Kabir Babikate and Malak Sils Malikyar, definitely. Those two people.
1: Okay. Well, we'll uh, get the show live and then once it's live, you can make the introduction.
0: I'll absolutely do that.
1: All right. Well, Nigar, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, the way you've sort of enlightened the sort of us uh, in terms of how to rethink and how to reshape the narrative of um displaced peoples and refugee and and to certainly open my eyes to just the the massive economic opportunity that that lies ahead of us if we if we do reshape um it from a crisis to an opportunity um and i think you're at a really interesting space so thank you very much
0: Thank you so, so much for your time and for your thoughtful conversation and questions and for holding the space, Mark.
1: Thanks. Okay, bye. Bye. Okay, that's all for this week, folks. If you're enjoying the show, please either follow, download or subscribe on your preferred podcast player. We'd also appreciate a rating and a review as it helps more people find us. And if you have a guest you think we should interview, just email us at info at theimpossiblenetwork.com or message us on Instagram at Network. This is a Fabrica Collective production, so have a great week and we'll be back next time with another inspiring guest on The Impossible Network.